So, uh, so this morning, as a, as a conclusion, I'd like to revisit the whole idea of contingency within the framework of Nama Rupa and consciousness, but to look at this from a contemporary perspective rather than a traditionally Buddhist one. And as I think I mentioned um, maybe on the first day, I'm not particularly interested in what classic Buddhist texts say about the nature of things and then, as it were, looking at modern science or psychology and, and drawing parallels. There is some uh, value in that, for sure, uh, some striking um, cross-referencing and so forth. But it seems to me that the, the more meaningful and perhaps the richer aspect of that dialogue is found in actually seeing where within contemporary discourses we actually find materials that enable us to flesh out and to perhaps in some ways make more vividly our own the insights that we might value from our Buddhist practice and vice versa. I think, and this is already happening in a way, the extent to which Buddhist practices rather than theories may be able to inform understandings, insights, intuitions within the fields of psychology, psychotherapy, the sciences, particularly neuroscience and so on. So I'd like to take a look at contingency and from the point of view of the natural sciences. And I'd like to start with um, going back and reconsidering what we now understand about the nature of rupa, matter or form, and to see what fresh insights um, might help us actually unpack what seems in some ways a fairly self-evident thing, you know, matter. This is a quote from a book by V.S. Ramachandran, who's um, um, he's an Indian-American, but not an American Indian, if you know the difference. <laughs> um, and this is a book he wrote called, from a book he wrote called Phantoms in the Brain. It's about neuroscience. He's a neuroscientist working, I think, down in San Diego or somewhere. And he says that a piece of brain the size of a grain of sand Again, try and imagine that. A, gr a grain of sand is very, very small. A piece of brain the size of a grain of sand contains 100,000 neurons, 2 million axons, they, I think, are the links between the neurons, and 1 billion synapses, which I think are configura figura configurations, all of which are talking to, in inverted commas, each other, in other words, they're all dynamically interacting the whole time. And it's been calculated that the number of possible brain states exceeds the number of elementary particles in the universe. <laughs> now, I think when we begin to um, recognize that matter, which in some ways traditional societies, and Buddhists certainly, have usually kind of represented as dumb, inert stuff, is actually more than it's perhaps cracked out to be, cracked up to be. And certainly when we come to neural matter, the brain, then we're encountering rupa, matter, 
in a way that it's extremely difficult to think of as inert or inactive. I mean, in comparison, for example, Buddha Gosha, the great uh, Theravada 5th century commentator, describes the brain as four uh, pieces of marrow in the head that when a person contracts a cold, comes out through the nose as mucus. Um, you know, we can laugh at that, but I mean, it's, it's, um, it's not that Buddha Gosha was stupid. Um, even Aristotle, who or likewise was no dummy, thought, of, thought that the brain was some kind of cooling organ that kept the body cool. It was sort of a, sort of a thermostat. But clearly there's an understanding of, of the brain and the nervous system uh, that we have today that makes those views look um, seriously um, unrealistic. And it's quite curious, actually, how Buddhists who pride themselves on their incisive understanding of the nature of mind, the nature of consciousness, have not once, in two and a half thousand years, made a link between the brain and the mind. And nowadays I feel that's an entirely untenable position. There is no thought about the brain at all. Now Ramachandran's quotation here suddenly throws this into a totally different perspective. It also, for me, makes it very difficult to um, assume that there is matter on the one hand and there is some ghostly mental stuff residing in it or passing through it on the other. But it's very difficult to think of matter and mind any longer as being two separate things. And it is, of course, remarkable that the Buddha himself, in the very earliest period, refused to speculate on the relation whether mind-matter were same, different, neither or both. He didn't feel that was a useful path to go. But as I mentioned already, most Buddhists tend to have opted for a body-mind dualism, largely, I feel, in order to be able to explain reincarnation. Okay, let's go back to Ramachandran's point. He says that the, 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 in one little grain of sand you have all of that neural activity going on. In the brain as a whole, which after all is something we can cup in our two hands as a piece of sort of a lumpy porridgey bit of stuff, that the number of configurations between the, the neurons, the axons, synapses and so on exceeds the number of elementary particles in the universe. Now, the universe consists, at current estimates, of 100 billion galaxies. 100 billion galaxies. And in each galaxy, or let, no, not, I, don't, I don't know about each galaxy, but in our galaxy, the Milky Way, there are 100 billion stars, in other words, solar systems. We then try to compute the number of elementary particles that would make up a hundred billion galaxies, each with a hundred billion solar systems, and then you get close to the estimate of how many possible brain states this piece of matter in here can configure. It's a hell of a lot. And it's, 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 it's mind-bogglingly enormous. 
it just exceeds the capacity of reason to actually make sense of that. I mean, a billion and a hundred billion are not, you know, I can't actually make much of a difference there. And so the amazing thing about this picture of the world is that whether we look inside into the organism that is apprehending our experience, or whether we look outside into the, the universe that surrounds us and is still expanding beyond us, we come across levels of unimaginable complexity. And then we have to reflect, or we don't have to reflect, but we could reflect, that all of this was generated approximately 15 billion years ago from an infinitesimally tiny drop of space-time. And remember that in that infinitesimally tiny drop, there was no location, that, that drop did not happen somewhere, and it did not happen at any time, because it contained within it all space and time. And from that infinitesimally tiny drop, there was this rapid expansion called the Big Bang, which is currently now at this level of 100 billion galaxies outside and a level of commensurable complexity within our own brains. And all of this came from a drop. Now this is not some weirdo Buddhist metaphysics. This is, this is hard science. At least it's the current state of hard science. And then from within this, once this um, planet that we inhabit, which was formed a mere four and a half billion years ago out of stardust and interstellar gases, within another half billion years, which is in, in the time frame we're speaking of is a very, very short time, the first kinds of organic life began to emerge in the oceans, the first um, single-celled organisms and so forth. 400 million years ago, a kind of fish evolved, and for its own particular reasons, for its survival in its own sub-subaquatic realm, it developed a kind of skeleton that maximized its adaptive fitness for that part of the ocean, and presumably the other forms of life that were competing with it. And because it generated that kind of skeleton, that then in, in, uh, arose the possibility for terrestrial life, in other words, for um, skeletal structures that could bear the weight of creatures crawling and walking on land. And this, of course, then generated the kinds of, uh, 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 first of all, amphibians, and then reptiles, birds, animals and so forth, um, and eventually the dinosaurs. And yet 65 million years ago, the dinosaur population was wiped out, probably by the impact of an asteroid, that's the current theory, but whatever happened, the life form that dominated the, um, the ecosphere 
on earth was finished. And it was at that point, because of that accident, that uh, mammalian life forms were then able to um, uh, uh, to propagate within these vacated ecological niches. And the very first mammals, in other words, creatures who suckled their young, who had hairy bodies, and who had the same reproductive systems as us, were then able to flourish. And the end of the story, of course, or not the end of the story, but the part of the story where we're at now <laughs> is Homo sapiens sap sapiens, i.e. us. Uh, creatures who speak, um, who do the sort of things that we do, go on meditation retreats, get drunk on Friday nights, watch television and so on. Now we like to think, in fact we don't even like to think, it seems almost a given in our sense of our reality that there's something as it were almost necessary about our existence. Um, it's very difficult for us to imagine that we could not be here. And yet what the story of evolution tells us is the extraordinarily contingent nature of our existence that, in other words, we need not have happened. If that particular kind of fish that had generated that skeletal structure had been wiped out by another kind, a kind of fitter fish, or there had been some cataclysm in the ocean, there's no certainty that terrestrial life forms would have emerged at all. And remember that fish was not developing that skeletal frame because it wanted to be able to stay up on Friday nights and watch television like us, <laughs> but for its own particular purposes. Its own particular purposes. If, for example, that asteroid had not impacted with the Earth at the time of the dinosaurs, mammalian life would not really have had much of a chance. The earliest mammals were basically small rodent-type creatures who could just about eke out an existence in the, the cracks and the crevices of the world dominated by the large reptilian dinosaurs. In other words, if that had not happened, this asteroid impact, then there's no reason to assume that we would have happened. That our existence, therefore, is contingent upon these events, upon these um, what appear to be accidents but happened for other reasons than our survival, our existence. And yet they are the conditions independence upon which or contingently upon which our particular life form emerged. And there's of course no guarantee at all that this particular experiment in a life form which is fairly successful um, in its dominance of the planet, will also survive beyond any given time. Um, we are subject to, uh, to viral infections, we're subject to other kinds of cataclysms, either natural ones or rather tragically, now in our history, man-made catastrophes, either nuclear devastation or uh, severe environmental pollution and so forth and so on, which could likewise serve to eradicate this particular form of life, our species. And in fact, we know now that 
because of our impact on the biosphere, we are also responsible for the species extinctions. I think it's, it's at the rate of several a day now, they say, um, of different kinds of fauna and flora that are unable to survive in a world dominated by human beings. Even if we do manage to survive, in the end, we will all, or this particular species, this race, at least on this earth, will finish. That the sun will eventually become a red dwarf, and as it explodes, it will engulf this entire planetary ring around the sun, and any form of life on this planet will cease. And of course it could also be that in another half billion years the creatures of that period will look back at this time and we will look as foreign to them as those fish look to us. And yet it's very difficult for us not to feel that our kind of existence, our bipedal conscious being is somehow a given in this world, but it's not. Now we don't have to go all the way back to um, uh, evolutionary theory and astrophysics in order to get a sense of our contingency. Perhaps a more immediate way of considering this is to think of the conditions of our own birth. Uh, this came home to me very strongly when I was, I think, about 13 or 14 years old. and. Um, we were having Christmas at my uncle and aunt's place and my mother and her sister, my aunt, were looking through an old photograph album and they came across a picture of a man, an old black and white photograph taken during the war of a guy, I seem to remember he had a pipe and he had khaki shorts and stuff and my mother just pointed out and said uh, to myself and my brother, she said, that man might have been your father. Not in the sense that my mother was sleeping with everybody in the army, <laughs> but, that, but that had things worked out differently, she would not have married the man who was my father, but she might have married this guy, who I seem to remember was called Cuthbert. But from her rather touchingly naive perspective, um, Cuthbert's seaman would simply have been a vehicle whereby her sons would have then been born in just by virtue of another male. But I remember at that time when she said this, um, suddenly the thought struck me, well if he had been my father, would I have been me? I would have had a whole different genetic set of materials making me and by this time me is becoming highly tenuous, <laughs> up, um, the circumstances in which I had been brought up would have been different. All the conditions that I can now look back on and see as the circumstances from which I emerged would have been different. Or let's take it even another step closer. Imagine that it had not been um, if, if my mother had conceived me in her next ovarian cycle, if it hadn't been that particular ovum, but the next one, 
Would that have been me? Would the resultant person have been Stephen? I don't really see why. Or if, for example, it had been the same ovum, but another one of my father's spermatozoa, remember there's millions of these things trying to sort of impregnate the ovum. If another one had impregnated the ovum, would the resultant person have been me? We would have been as different from me, surely, as a non-identical twin. To what extent would it have been me? Or take it after the process of birth. Let's imagine that my parents had been killed uh, when, when I was 18 months old and I'd been then put up for adoption and I had been raised, um, instead of being raised north of London, I'd been raised on a farm in Missouri and I'd been called Wayne. <laughs> <laughs> Would that have been me? I mean, I, I like to think, but perhaps as, as naively as my mother, that, you know, if I'd been Wayne on a farm in Missouri, speaking a kind of funny English, <laughs> at the age of 18, 19, 20, I would have suddenly had an interest in Buddhism and gone off to India. That's how I like to think. But the conditions for that choice would have been totally different the people I would have met, the influences I would have received, all of the circumstances, all of the contingencies that in England, 1972, gave rise to the thought, oh wow, let's go to India, may not have happened. So the more that we think about the, the, diff you know, the choices we have made, the, um, the things that have happened to us, that every single one of those has an impact on our lives in some way that generates a sense that I currently have of being me. And there's a strong sense in that that what I am now is somehow the necessary outcome of all of that. In fact, there's a sense, like in the sense I just mentioned, you know, if I'd been brought up in Missouri called Wayne, I would have still at the age of 19 gone off to India and become a Buddhist monk. There's a sense there that there's something non-contingent about that person. That whatever would have happened to it, it would have done the same thing. But that seems very unlikely. <laughs> that one cannot, of course, project what would have happened, but I think one cannot assume that the same courses of events, the same choices would have been made. And I feel it's in this way, by reflecting on the contingency of our lives in such a fashion, that we can begin to get a sense of what it might mean to, to be empty, to be selfless. That, in other words, that emptiness is pointing to the fact that our existence is not actually necessary. To me, contingency and necessity seem to be, in a way, opposing terms in this discourse. Is this going to stop in a minute? Or? Possibly, yes. I mean, everything can well, I know it'll change. <laughs> <laughs> but I just wonder if I should wait for it to change. Possibly not. Possibly not. We've gotten used to it. We've gotten used to it. Okay. But can you hear me at the back? Yeah? Okay. Yeah. Stephen, I think that's going to do a lot to your recording, though. 
Well, there's nothing we can do about it. Where was I? Um, oh yeah, contingency necessity. Um, and I found this very, I found it very useful actually to, to 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 think of one's existence in this way, which again is not, I think, terribly uh, um, remarkable in the sort of world view that we inhabit. And it gives, I think, a clue or it gives an, an insight into the extraordinarily um, tentative nature of our existence. If we can think of ourselves in that way, that in itself, I think, can help us let go of that deep-seated sense that I must be what I am. To just reflect on the fact that I need not have happened. It need not have worked out like this. And in the same way, of course, the rest of our lives, the remaining 20, 30, 40 years, whatever we have left, is also an open possibility. It's not fixed or predetermined that it, this or that must happen. And this is not just due to the choices we may or may not make. Of course, every choice eliminates a whole range of other possibilities. But also, things that happen to us that are out of our control. You know, accidents, disease, we could, we could have a, a stroke. I think anyone in this room could have a stroke tomorrow, probably. And that could make a significant difference to what our lives will then be. So this is another way, I feel, of, of coming to terms with contingency. But I find that also what this kind of um, reflection opens up is an encounter or an awareness of the sheer magnitude and awesomeness of the kind of universe we live in, one that radically exceeds our capacity to represent it. And again, just from the very early examples of the 100 billion galaxies and so on, that very statement somehow short-circuits our capacity to picture that in a kind of intelligible and comprehensible way. The story of evolution, the fossil record, all of these things is, it, exceed what we can meaningfully represent. And in this sense, we also come quite close, I feel, to what Nagarjuna and other Buddhist teachers seem to be pointing to, namely the limitations of language and the limitations of conceptuality. And once we begin to let go of that obsession with being able to make sense out of everything, to be able to maintain a continuous representation of me somehow running this show and surviving, when that habit of mind, that delusion of necessity begins to break down, it opens up the world in terms of what we might call uh, a sublime experience. And this brings me to the, the theme that runs through this book, um, Verses from the Center, and that is the notion of the sublime. And the sublime is the term I've chosen for the Sanskrit word paramatasatya, 
which is usually translated as the ultimate truth or the uh, absolute truth, which is a terrible translation. But param arta literally means um, highest meaning truth. And the term sublime, especially as it was used in its earliest sense, likewise meant the highest thing to which we can aspire or which we can imagine. It has a sense of sublimity, has a sense of extreme elevation, the highest thing to which we can aspire. God is regarded as sublime in those writings. But the notion of the sublime that I think is particularly helpful in reading Nagarjuna is that which was developed mainly by Edmund Burke, who was an 18th century Irish philosopher statesman, who wrote a very influential a very influential essay on the beautiful and the sublime. And for Burke, the sublime was characterized by two things. On the one hand, it was endlessly fascinating, and, but simultaneously, it was also profoundly terrifying. And the other aspect of it, which qualifies both, is the fact that it is excessive. It exceeds our capacity for representation. Now when we get someone like Coleridge, and remember Wordsworth, Coleridge, Keats, Byron, Shelley, all of these people who lived about 50 years after Burke were profoundly influenced by this idea of the sublime. And they would seek out in nature, mainly, the experience of that dimension of reality that literally brought their thought processes to a stop. In Coleridge's case, this was also facilitated by large amounts of opium and brandy. But when we look at what, I mean, Coleridge also being an intellectual, tried to define what he meant by the sublime, and particularly the experience of the sublime, and he described it as the suspension of the act of comparison. Now this I find quite interesting because it, ma it matches quite closely the idea we were speaking of yesterday about suspending the Kleshic system. In other words, Coleridge realizes that he encounters the sublime when a certain pattern of thinking stops. In this case, the act of comparison this versus that, which again is peculiarly reminiscent of Nagarjuna-type reasoning, to get out of the idea that something must either be this or that, a cause or an effect. And however useful that language is, it's limiting in the sense that it puts a kind of screen, a veil, over our experience that makes it more intelligible, it helps configure it, it helps us discern things, but at the same time, it actually limits and cuts us off from the immediacy and the overwhelmingness of what life is continuously generating. In other words, we might say it cuts us off from a sense of the mysterious. And I find that my sense of the mysterious is far more 
um, enhanced by reading some of these works on astrophysics and evolution than it is by reading religious texts. Certainly poetry captures that sense of the sublime and quite naturally Coleridge and Keats and so forth were particularly driven to write their poetry precisely in order to convey and to capture that sense of sublimity. And I think any great work of art, be it poetry or painting or whatever, seems to me to work precisely because it forces us or it, pre, 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 it, it uh, uh, confronts us with a sense of ourselves, a sense of the world that goes beyond our habitual way of conceiving it, of thinking about it, of representing it. So again, that's Burke's definition of beyond the capacity of language to be represented. Christian theology has picked this up. Some back in the 1920s, there was a very influential book written by Rudolf Otto called um, Das Heilige in German, or The Idea of the Holy in uh, English, which seeks to, to look at the whole of religious experience in terms of the sublime. Um, Otto called it the numinous, the sense of the numinous, which was a term also picked up by Jung. And I feel likewise that, um, and actually, actually Otto does in this book refer to Shunyata as a Buddhist metaphor of the sublime. Uh, he, he recognizes that it's the, the you know, the, the, the taking out the selfing system, the klesha system, that opens us up to a world, as I was trying to hint at yesterday, in which the sheer overwhelming, bewildering array of contingencies in a sense, stops our thought, stops our limiting capacity of everything wanting, of wanting everything to be in its place. And certainly when we think of either our own meditation experience at those times when it's felt really meaningful and, and deep for us, is very often a sense of our thought, our mind somehow coming to a stop by the sheer extraordinariness of what's happening an ability to, as it were, suspend the power of comparisons and just to be with what is unfolding. And again, a lot of Zen koans, a lot of uh, spiritual poetry um, seems to suggest that quality of experience. So I think we find a connect... Ah, oh, you have to go. Right. Oh, that's my mind. I was just about to finish there anyway. So we'll call it a day. <laughs> um, but I hope that what, what I've just said uh, somehow, albeit in an extremely sketchy way, pulls together the notion of contingency, the notion of the sublime, the notion of cessation, the notion of emptiness, and so on. Perhaps I could just end with... Um, with a couple of quotes from Keats that are in this book, so you've probably read them, but it's worth, I think, bringing them back to mind. Uh, Keats um, developed this extraordinary concept of negative capability, which for him was the crucial frame of mind for any kind of uh, 
imaginative, creative, poetic work. And he describes it as that condition when a man is capable of being in uncertainties, mysteries, doubts, without any irritable reaching after fact or reason, which is an almost exact definition of certain kinds of Zen meditation. If you just ask yourself the question, what is this? You are effectively being challenged to try to be, remain in, be in uncertainties, mysteries and doubts without any irritable reaching after fact or reason, which is of course what the mind does. And it's interesting to see when you start this kind of practice how desperately you look for an answer. You look for some kind of explanation, some kind of description, some kind of you know, religious idea that can somehow give you an answer. Yet Keats, um, like Coleridge, values that sense of uncertainty and openness as particularly as the source of the creative imagination, as the source of encountering the world anew, afresh, rather than simply repeating experiences we've had again and again and again and again and again. And remember, sangsara, this cycle of birth and death, is effectively repetitive existence. The same thing's just happening again and again and again. And that's where we're stuck. We're stuck in a cycle of, of habits, of perceptions, of ideas, of opinions, of beliefs, that just keep on reasserting themselves. And we run around in this circle, a bit like a hamster on a wheel, thinking that we're really you know, doing things, whereas in fact we're perhaps not really getting very far at all. And further, when, um, you see, for Keats, his great hero was Shakespeare. <coughs> and to understand Shakespeare, Keats, um, in a way, developed this idea of negative capability as a means to understand how a person could have generated such a richly imaginative universe, the universe of Shakespeare's plays. Um, in fact, Keats describes Shakespeare as the least of an egoist that it was possible to be. He was nothing in himself, but he was all that others were or that they could become. And then later, um, not in reference to Shakespeare, um, Keats describes the, 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 the nature of the poetical character. And he says, as to the poetical character itself, it is not itself. It has no self. It is everything and nothing. It has no character. It enjoys light and shade. It lives in gusto, be it foul or fair, high or low, rich or poor, mean or elevated. It has as much delight in conceiving an Iago as an Imogen. What shocks the virtuous philosopher delights the chameleon poet. And in many regards, it seems to me, and again, this is a very much my own personal view, that Nagarjuna is kind of like the chameleon poet. And many of his um, successors are very much like virtuous philosophers. That there's an attempt each time you get a, a spiritual teaching, or mystical revelation of some kind, that it's, 
you know, it, it, its audacity and its potency is almost felt to be threatening to those who would wish to confine everything within a clearly contrived and articulate belief system. And that, I think, has been very much the history of all religions, all philosophical systems, is this ebb and flow from the sublime to, I'm tempted to say, the ridiculous. <laughs> but, <laughs> but let's say from that which exceeds the capacity of representation to that which can be very conveniently and very tightly inframed within a system of representation. And every theology, every buddhology, is very much an attempt to do exactly that. And that was the tradition in which I was trained. And of course it's very valuable. As Nagarjuna himself points out, without conventions you cannot even begin to get close to this kind of experience. And yet the experience he's speaking of is by definition excessive. It's beyond the capacity of conceptual representation. And so we exist, as it were, as Buddhists or Christians or Jains or Hindus or whatever, in this, uh, in this, ten in this tension between uh, thought and language on the one hand and experience and the sublime or the divine or the sacred, whatever we call it, on the other. And that perhaps is a good place to, to conclude. Now let's have a short break. It's uh Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.